Just a quick comment before we begin. Um, the words on the screen were a little bit different. I forgot the uh, NASB 2020 edition came out, so the website I copied it from, uh, you probably have in your Bible either the 77 or the 95, and so I'll, uh, I'll pay closer attention to that when I make up the PowerPoint the next time. But uh, just because it wasn't confusing enough to already have a couple of other editions of things. So, uh, but I understand where they're coming from. There are phrases and things that they were trying to clarify and all of that. So, more importantly, we come now here to Hebrews chapter 12. And here in Hebrews chapter 12, we have this idea of discipline. So, we're not far off from January. What often happens in January? People make New Year's resolutions, right? Some people. Other people are like, it didn't work the last year, I'm not going to try again. But, make New Year's resolutions, right? A lot of those don't last the month. Some of them don't last the first week of the month. Uh, A lot of them have to do with exercise, right? It's a new year. It's a chance for a new you, right? That's what everybody wants to sell us. That's when the gyms really rake in their memberships, right? At least in previous years. It's, join the gym. It'll be amazing. It'll be good for you. You'll do it every day. Then we rediscover an important fact. Exercise takes work. We don't always like to do work. And often we lack motivation to overcome that difficult fact. What could motivate us? Let's say that you were uh, playing on a high school soccer, football, volleyball, whatever kind of team. And there was a student who was a couple years ahead of you. And they had a great season a few years back. Maybe that would motivate you to try really hard because you wanted to have the same kind of season that they did. For me, when I was in high school, it was not the coach who stood on the sidelines and yelled at us, but the coach who ran marathons in his free time, and when we were playing soccer, showed all of us high school guys up and ran circles around us. It's like, come on, guys. He's, you know, he's run around the block twice, and we're you know, trying to keep up. That was motivating, right? For one, we don't want to be shown up by this guy that's 30 years older than us. And for another, because he's there, and he's encouraging us, and he's gone before us, he shows us that we can do it, right? This is true in a lot of areas. If it's your coach running with you, you probably press on further. If it's your music teacher playing alongside you, you want to you do well for their sake. If it's your boss was working right there with you, your, your, your work output and productivity probably goes up a little bit than if you think nobody's watching you at work, right? Because that's just kind of how we tend to be. So on the one hand, knowing someone before you has succeeded is a powerful motivation, And even beyond that, knowing not just a fellow struggler, athlete, musician, worker has succeeded, but the greatest in a particular area, that's an even greater motivation. And so that's how our passage in Hebrews 12 starts this morning. Obviously, these are imperfect analogies because Jesus is far greater than any coach or teacher or boss, right? But there's some parallels there. But it doesn't stop there. We might think, okay, just press on, do harder, work harder. The thing itself is the goal. You know, it's 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 not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. Well, there's more to it, right? You want to win, right? Exercise has a point. There is the rare person who loves running or whatever sort of exercise for the sake of it itself, right? But usually we're trying to work toward a particular goal, right? There's that pair of pants you want to fit in. There's that extra piece of pie that you want to have. 
There is whatever else. There is a reason that we are doing the exercise. There's a goal at the end of it. And the goal at the end of the spiritual exercise of our faith that's talked about here in Hebrews 12 is a far more important goal than do your clothes fit, do you get to eat the foods that you like, and do you um, look good to everyone around you. There's a far more important goal going on here. And that goal is that we would be fruitful and accomplish what God wants us to accomplish in our Christian lives. We see that in verse 11. To those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The goal is the reward. The reward is a fruitful life that is pleasing to God on the way to the ultimate reward, which is being in God's presence forever. So, like Jesus, this passage urges us to exercise your faith to be fruitful. How do we do this? First of all, look around and above. So, first of all, look around. Who do we look around at? Faithful witnesses. We see this in verse 1. We have so great a cloud of witnesses. They are most likely, in the context here, the heroes of the faith that we see in chapter 11. Those who, according to chapter 11, verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance and confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Those who, in verse 39, it says, in all the, And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Now there's two ways that we could take this phrase. One is that they are a great cloud of witnesses who are like the spectators in the stands, right? That raises a whole bunch of interesting questions for us, like do people who are in heaven, are they able to look down on us, all of those sorts of things. While that is a possible sense of what we see here in this phrase, the more likely sense is this. They are not witnesses watching us and witnessing how we live. They are witnesses having gone before us and testifying to God's faithfulness that helped them to succeed. It's a little bit of a subtle difference, but it is a difference, right? So the focus is not them watching us. The focus is us watching them and seeing God's work that he has done in their lives, which I think fits very well with the sense of Hebrews 11. Look at these whom God has worked powerfully in. They're not here watching you, but you look to their example having gone before you. But even more importantly than that, the author of Hebrews says to look above. Not just look around, not just look back, but look above. Look above to whom? Look above to Jesus. Jesus is our example. We see that he is the author and perfecter of our faith. There were a lot of arguments when people were translating different versions of the Bible about how to translate these words here. Was it, as in some Bibles, Jesus is the pioneer and the forerunner? There were people who were hesitant to put it that way because it makes it sound like Jesus is only our example, right? In some sort of moralistic sense, like, be like Jesus, Jesus was kind, you be kind, Jesus was honest, you be honest, that takes out the, the saving nature of what Jesus did. But the emphasis here is really on that idea of Jesus has gone before us, right? And that doesn't undermine the things that we see in the rest of Scripture, which is Jesus is not just our example, because apart from his work, we can't follow that example, right? 
We're sinners. We need transforming work. We need Jesus' substitution in our place to give us genuinely salvation. All that has to happen before we can follow Jesus' example. But even so, Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one who has gone before us. He's laid the way. He's finished his race, even though it was long and hard and even shameful. What do we see there in verse 2? For the joy set before him, that was his motivation, endured the cross, that was the hard thing that he went through, despising the shame, the mockery, the rejection of people around him, and then he receives his reward, he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, I skipped the second half of verse 1, right? So let's go back to that for a moment. Because God has caused these heroes of the faith before us to succeed, because Jesus has both patterned and succeeded at his own race, course, contest before God, what are you and I supposed to do? In looking around and above, that leads us to, verse 1, lay aside every encumbrance, and the sin which so easily entangles us, and run with endurance the race that is set before us. So we look, but then we do something based on our looking. We see those who have succeeded by God's help before us, specifically and greatest, the example of Jesus himself, but that then leads us to put something off and to do something faithfully. What is it that we put off? It says, every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. You can go back and forth on whether these are two different things that are closely related or the same thing with different words. Both of them are talking about its weights and entanglements, right? Both of them are bad for a runner, right? I don't run, but I've been interested in biking recently. And... Earlier in the summer, I had a bike, and the bike was a fun bike to ride for a short period of time. You know why? Because the bike weighed 43 pounds. It was a heavy bike. It was a steel frame. It had cheap wheels, so it was heavy. The bike I have now is closer to 30 pounds. That doesn't sound like a whole lot when it's me sitting on the bike, but it adds up if you go very far, right? So some people take that to extremes, right? There's a person that'll spend $10,000 on a bike to shave three ounces off the weight. And that's their prerogative. But there is a big difference between going from 43 pounds down to 30 pounds, right? Sin is the extra weight that slows us down and pulls us off to the side, right? It entangles us. It's as though you're running or biking or going on a trail and there's vines that are wrapping around you and pulling you off the trail and and that sort of imagery here. And the author of Hebrews is saying, cast those things aside. Why? Because of those who've gone before you, because of the example of Jesus himself, put those things aside. Why don't we put them aside? Because we like them. It feels good to speak with an outburst of anger to somebody who's upset us. It feels good to be lazy. 
It feels good to want something and to treasure it in our hearts and to look at it and think about it and be like, if I just had this thing, I would be happy. You know what happens when you do that? At the very least, you're distracted from running the race that God has set before you. And at the very worst, you stop running the race entirely. Or, the sobering reality, perhaps you've even, never even begun to run the race to begin with, right? Because you never even got going. Here, though, the emphasis is on those who are believers who can be distracted and taken off course by sin. But it's not enough just to say that we need to lay aside sin. That's the first part of it. We have to run the race with endurance. That means we have to keep going, right? And oftentimes, you know, we say, well, I've set aside the sin. I went a little ways. All right, it's time to stop for a break. That was a tough 50 feet that I just ran there. Right? This is saying run with endurance. How long is your race? You don't know. Right? Your race could be five years. Your race could be 75 years. You don't know. But this passage calls us to run with endurance the race, the life of following God that he has set before us. So to do that, we look around, we look above, and then based on looking around and looking above, we run the race. But, and the rest of the passage develops this further, we need to stop giving up so easily. Stop giving up so easily. You say, all right, this is supposed to be a day of thanksgiving and rejoicing. Why are you making me feel bad about myself? Because before we can thank God and rejoice in what he's doing, we have to acknowledge and come face to face with our sin and our failures and purpose to move on past them, right? So what are those? First of all, Jesus went all the way to the cross, but you and I quit before we've worked up a sweat, let alone died trying. Right? Look at verse 3. Consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself. And verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and your striving against sin. Jesus died to finish his course. Jesus was so intensely praying that it said he sweat great drops of blood. We come up against a temptation and we're like, ah, if I don't do this, I might look bad to people around me. We come up to a temptation and we're like, ah, I'm going to say no, I'm going to say no. Okay, ten seconds later I say yes. Do you see the difference between what Jesus did and what this passage is calling us to do? We give up too easily. And then we pat ourselves on the back about it. I'm really struggling with this sin. No, we're not struggling. We should be struggling, but often when we say we're struggling, we're saying, I like this sin and I keep giving into it. Will you feel bad with me about it because you're a sinner too? Right? And I'm not just preaching at you guys. I do this too. I, and just Let's be honest here. When it says... He endured hostility by sinners against himself, and he, was, he went to the point of shedding blood in striving against sin. 
we quit far sooner than Jesus did. Because, of course, he did not quit, but we quit far before we've even come close to how far Jesus went. Jesus was, furthermore, punished by God as a sign of God's love, not his rejection. You say, where do you see that in the verses? Well, verse 5 through 6 Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or faint when you're approved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every son whom He receives. This is a quote from the Old Testament. And we look at that and we say, God putting Jesus through all that He went through on on the way to the cross, how could that be love? That must be God's rejection of Jesus. There are people who say, I could never believe in a God like the God described in the Bible because how could someone do that to their child? God did, and Jesus did, and Jesus never questioned God's love for him or his relationship with God in the midst of the suffering, even though in the Garden of Gethsemane he pleads for God to take it away from him, he goes through with it, and God never stopped loving Jesus. Now, we have this difficult idea where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that instant in which God pours out his wrath against the sins of the world on Jesus, right? But God continued to love Jesus. God never stopped being Jesus' Father, even in the midst of those things. So what then does that have to do with us? God disciplines you so you will endure and as a sign of his love for you. We see that in verses 7 through 11. Why is this important? Well, we see that God did this with Jesus. And as we see over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus says, the servant is not better than his master. You follow in my footsteps. I don't follow in your footsteps. So if God disciplines Jesus and Jesus passes the test, so to speak, why would we expect as God's people that it's going to be any different from us? We follow in Jesus' example. In fact, that's how the passage started out, right? What do we need to recognize about this? Well, first of all, if there is no discipline, you are not a son. Verses 7 and 8. Especially, verse 8, For what son is there with whom his father does not discipline? If you are without discipline, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Think about that for a moment. If your life is always easy, and there is never any struggle against sin, it's probably not because you've arrived. It's far more likely that it's because you don't know God at all, and so your life is easy because there's nothing opposing the wave of sin that keeps washing through your soul. So we look at it, and we're like, my life is easy, no one persecutes me, I never have to struggle against sin. If that is our experience for our entire lives, the way the New Testament argues against us being genuine believers. 
Furthermore, verse 9 says, We had earthly fathers to discipline us, and they res we respected them. Shouldn't we rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? If you followed your own father's commands and discipline and telling you what you should and shouldn't do, how much more should you follow God? Why? Because, verse 10, they did it imperfectly. Raise your hand if you're a perfect father. Don't do it because I don't have to call anyone out for being a liar. Because we all know that we're not perfect, right? We ask our children to do things that we don't do. We are poor examples from time to time. But God is the perfect example, the perfect father. And if we're going to follow anyone's example, anyone's discipline, it ought to be God's, right? That's the point of these verses. But what's the reward? What's the goal? What is it that we're working toward? Verse 11. It's not fun when you're in the middle of it, right? It's not joyful, but sorrowful. But, or yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. If you keep going, you'll be useful to God and then as Hebrews 11 talks about, ultimately you'll receive the reward of being in God's presence and all of the blessings of salvation that He's promised to you. But here it's focused more on the course of our life in this world, not the reward beyond this life, but our course of our life in this world. You will be fruitful. You will be peaceful. You will be expressing the righteousness that God wants to create in your life, in your soul. So how do we take all these things together? So like one of those New Year's resolutions that we're going to run a marathon or we're going to bike 50 or 100 miles, where are we? You and I are often still sitting on the sofa, right? I want to do this. This would be amazing. I want to get that sticker to put on my car. I want to boast other people that I completed a century on my bike, you know, whatever. We're still sitting on the sofa. What's the first step? Get up off the sofa, Right? We get out the front door. All right, it's going good. We get to the end of the block. Ah, oh, man, it's really sunny. It's too cold. It's windy. We come up with a million excuses. We turn around, we go back inside. Are you going outside? And, and, and you're going, and it's going well, and you're getting a little bit further, and you look over the side, and you're like, oh, that's interesting. So you stop, and you look at it. What's going on over there? And we get distracted. Maybe you go completely off course. You say, you know what? I'm done with this. You sell your bike. You sell your running shoes. You throw away your exercise clothes. You say, I'm done with this. I don't want anything to do with it. If you're a genuine believer, you don't stay in that state. But there are many who have professed to follow Christ who go a little ways and then fail. I mean, that's what the, the parable of the soils in Matthew talks about, right? As soon as it gets hard, they quit, they leave. What does this look like spiritually? You know what? I should learn more about God. But I'm going to go watch this video on YouTube instead. I should learn more about God, but I'm going to spend four hours listening to things on the radio while I'm driving in my car and zero minutes looking at my Bible when I get home. I want to do better at 
playing an instrument. So I'm going to spend an hour every day practicing, but I'm not going to spend any time at all praying to God. The problem in our Christian lives is not that we don't have time to develop our relationship with God. It's that we do not take the time that we have to do it because it's not important enough to us. So, going back to the illustration. You're sitting on the sofa, spiritually and physically. Get up. Walk over. Get your Bible. Open it. Look at it. And then, you're looking at it, and you come across something that's hard. Jesus says something that doesn't make sense. Or you say, I don't really want to do that. Don't give up and close your Bible and say, I'm done with this. This is too hard. I don't want to do it. I'm not going to follow through. Pray and ask for God's help. What's the test of a genuine believer? When Jesus confronts the crowds and says something hard to them, the ones who don't really want to follow him, leave. The disciples say, what did you mean by that, Lord? And that's what we need to do as well. Then it comes to something like sin or temptation. We're like, you know what? Um, people who don't believe in God and who don't, who don't come to church, they have a lot more free time and money to do whatever they want. Right? And I'm not trying to lecture anybody on giving to the church or whether you come to every single service. That's not the point of what I'm saying. I'm just saying, if we're honest, there are moments when all of us have thought and said, you know what, if I had every Sunday and Wednesday night and every cent that comes in my checkbook, I could do more of the things I want to do. Right? Let's be honest. We think that at some point or another. But how long does the, do those things benefit us? And would we really be happier if we spent more time and money on ourselves? Because we try that. And the time and money that we already spend on ourselves doesn't make us happy. So why do we think that doing the same thing over and over again is going to have a different result? People have said that's the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. What God calls us to do is not to look at the things that come into our lives and the disciplines of the Christian life as a burden, but as the way to avoid the burden of sin. What does the passage say? Does it say spending time with God and gathering with other believers, that's the burden? No, it says the burden is... Sin. Cast that burden aside. The thing that seems like a burden, working hard to develop your relationship with God. Praying with other believers, speaking God's truth to one another, reading God's word, praying to God, all those things together. Those things are not the burden. From the world's perspective, they are the burden, but from God's perspective, they are what frees you from the burden. Or Paul said it in this way, the wisdom of God is foolishness to men, but the wisdom of God that appears foolish is wiser than the actual foolishness of man's wisdom. What it seems to be and what it is are two different things. And what God calls us to do in this passage is to say, God has helped faithful believers before us to succeed. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, succeeded fully and completely, and as the example and the forerunner of our faith, so... Set aside the sin. But I really like the sin. Trying to run the Christian life with sin is like putting on a 300-pound backpack and expecting to win a marathon. 
with no training. How well is that going to go for you? Not at all. Christ comes to free us from that sin so that we set it aside, so that we stop loving it, so that we can run with faithfulness the course that He's laid out for us. I don't know what that sin is for you. Maybe it's greed, maybe it's lust, maybe it's pride, maybe it's a rotating uh, parade of those things. Who knows? But we set those aside. We run with endurance the course that God has set before us because in the back of our minds we recognize even though this is hard and takes sweat and blood and tears, it is for our good. And more importantly, it's for God's glory. Right? So the song that we were singing a few moments ago, I forget which one of the two it was, it says, God's going to gather His harvest in and it's going to bring praise to Him. We're the fruit that He is accomplishing in the church. So, how did the Apostle Paul think about this journey? To, to wrap up here. Until you see the finish line, you're not there. Philippians 3.13, he says, I press on toward the prize of the call of Christ Jesus. Right? And it's not until he was about to die that he says, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. I'm going to receive my reward. Right? So what about you and I? How much effort do you put into walking with Jesus? How hard will you fight sin? How long will you stick with being a Christian? This passage says, if you have turned from your sin and turned to Jesus, you are on this course, you are doing this race, you are set on a course and God is with you and He's given you examples and He's going to help you. But it's not going to be easy. And that's where so much of contemporary Christianity fails you because it says, if you check off these boxes, your life will be easy. You will always be happy. You'll have everything you want. And the Bible doesn't lay out that picture of following Jesus. It says, it's going to be hard. It's going to be like running up that hill. It's going to be like biking that last mile. It's going to be like refusing to eat that thing. It's going to be like all the things that we really say, yeah, I kind of want it, but I don't really want it. If you can, by God's grace, overcome your natural laziness and just being distracted and all those sorts of things, then the reward is worth it, right? What's the reward? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. But what do we have to do? We have to let ourselves be trained by God, be disciplined by God, work hard through the hard times of life. And sometimes we don't want to go through with it. But by God's grace, we can. By God's grace, we must. And by God's grace, we will. Let's pray. Lord, help us to look around and above. Help us to stop giving up so easily. Maybe we've been giving up easily. There is hope. We turn back to you. You are a faithful God. You continue to work in our lives. Maybe we've never begin, began to run the race. There is hope. You offer salvation. You offer not an easy life, but eternal life. You offer not a life free from difficulty, 
but a reward that is worth any difficulty that we go through in this life. Lord, help us, please, to see the value of following after you, to see that the reward that you hold out before us is worth it, to do the hard work, not just of, not physical exercise, that's just the illustration for this passage, which helps us for a brief while in this earth, but more importantly, and the point of the passage, spiritual exercise of the faith that you have given us in and through Jesus. Lord, help us to run the race well, to see the help that you have given us in the midst of it, for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.